Hello, this is Ray Gelato and this is Gelato's Parlour. And have I got a very special episode for you this week and I'll tell you what it is. Um, we're going to be doing this one live from one of London's most iconic music venues. In fact, I go as far as to say that it's one of the most iconic music venues on this planet in the world. It's the world-famous 100 Club on Oxford Street, number 100 Oxford Street. And the 100 Club has been going for many years. It was definitely and still is my musical home. I've played there since the early 80s and uh, really started my career down there. And um, I'm going to be meeting the owner, who's a very good friend of mine, Mr. Jeff Horton. And Jeff will tell you tell us all about the uh, great artists that have played this wonderful venue. And anybody who's anybody has played at the 100 Club. So I hope you enjoy it. How are you, Jeff? Oh, I'm good, thanks, Ray. How are you, mate? You're yeah, right? I'm good, thank you. I'm good, but I really appreciate you coming on this podcast. No, it's a pleasure. But uh, and it's really nice to my whole idea with this is to interview the characters, you know, and people that are doing things, and also rather than just talking about old stories from the past yeah. and things about me, you know, my career, it's nice to find out people who have been keeping the whole scene in London going. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had Anthony Poledri on Bar Lovely. Italia, yeah, boss, you brilliant. Know. And he was talking about the pitfalls of the uh, the bar and, and and the good things and the bad and, and yeah, the ugly, you know. Yeah, of course. And that's really what I want to speak to you about. But basically, just to give us a brief resume of how, how you got started and your dad used to run this. So just let us tell us what happened. Yeah, so it basically, uh, my nan uh, was a, a shareholder here. She became a shareholder in 1958. <laughs> um, her boss was an accountant called Ted Morton, who also had a shareholding here. And when one of the shareholders left, he advised my nan to buy his shareholding. So she did. Um, and she became, uh, she owned a third of the company. And then another shareholder retired, and my uncle became a shareholder. But for some reason, he, it wasn't really for him. Um, I've no idea why. So he ended up selling it to my dad in 1964. My dad had a record shop in Walker's Court um, at the time, and he sold that. And with the proceeds he made on his shop, he bought the shareholding here. And the first thing he did, funnily enough, was take the word jazz out the title because it had been London Jazz Shows, the London Jazz Club. It had also been called Humps after Humphrey Littleton. Uh, his agent, Lynn Dutton, owned it. And my dad named it the 100 Club because of its location at 100 Oxford so Street. So was your dad, your, uh, by the way, uh, Jeff's dad was Roger Horton. Roger right? Horton, that's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was my dad that then immediately uh, changed the sort of um, the, the music here, because it had been primarily a jazz club, jazz seven days a week. Which artists would have, just just give us a couple of artists who would have played here since oh, about 19, Lonnie, you know, Lonnie, Lonnie Donegan played here, uh, Chris Barber played here, Ackerbill, um, Alex Welsh. All those sort of British type players, but also peanut, people like Peanuts Hucko uh, played over here, who was like Glenn Miller's, Glenn Miller's clarinet player. Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And wow. um, actually, um, during the when when the, the club first opened, when it was Max Restaurant in 1942, and all the US servicemen were over here during the war, Glenn Miller often popped down, wow. sort of put his head around the corner and got up and had a jam a couple in of times. In this very room in, we're sitting on in. that very stage as well, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. by the way, uh, we're at, Jeff and I are actually sitting in the Under Club. That's why you got a bit of an echo in the acoustic. <laughs> but we thought we for authenticity we'd do it. So they play. So they, these icons used to pop down yeah, here as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and um, you know, P Peanuts Hucko. I mean, he ended up playing here in the 70s and 80s before he died. But during the war, he was often down. And, and Louis Armstrong, um, he was touring with Humphrey Littleton wow. at the time, and it was Hump's club. And Hump was doing his residency here, and Louis just walked in and just walked on stage and did, like, a, a couple of numbers with him and stuff. So, you know, it, that's how far back this club goes. In fact, I don't know if you know, Ray, 
but it is actually officially the oldest live music venue in the world. You know, I I I, I didn't know that at all, yeah. but it doesn't it, it, it doesn't uh, surprise. There were places that opened before us, but they've all shut. So it's the longest running music venue. That's in incredible. The world. So what we're what we're really doing is we're sitting in a piece of history. Yeah. But it's not just nostalgic history; it's an ongoing thing because yeah. we'll get to that in a minute. But so what happened when your dad took it over? Give us a. Little... So the first thing he did was he had residencies. He was he carried on doing the jazz for maybe five nights a week but he had residences with the Stones and the Kinks and the Who when they were the high numbers and so these <laughs> bands started playing yeah. down here. Uh, in fact he tells me that um, when he did the Kinks residency I think he had six Thursdays in a row once a month and the first time they played down here they had about 45 people here by the last time they played You Really Got Me had just gone to number one and their very next gig was down here at the 100 Club he said there were like 2,000 people what? trying to get in yeah. it's just incredible yeah and it's funny, that kind of uh, eclectic music taste has taken us through every genre you can think of. So we played jazz here for years and years, blues, so we've had you know, people like Muddy Waters have played I here. I saw him here, Jeff. Did you? I did. I, saw I never Mud knew that. I saw Muddy Waters here and I also saw Jimmy Witherspoon down here. I've seen Jimmy Blue Witherspoon singing. here as well, yeah. yeah when amazing. did Muddy Waters play here? I think he played here twice. I think he played here once in the 1960s. Now, the 80s he played here, though. And in the 80s, I'm sure. I think in the early 80s he did. But somebody told me, I'm not sure how much truth there is in this. I'm sure somebody listening will sort of do some research and tell me if there's truth or not. But someone who knows a lot about the club, one of my dad's mates, he reckons that when Muddy Waters played here in the 60s, it was the first time he'd used an electric guitar. It's a bit similar to the. Um, Bob Dylan thing. Do you remember when he, he went from like he was playing in New York and he went from playing acoustic guitar to electric and there were all boos and people walking out. Right. It was. A, I'm, I'm not sure what the crowd's reaction was, but I've been told in pretty good um, by someone who knows a lot about the club that actually Muddy picked up an electric guitar for the first time when he played Ain't down that here. Something. Because hey, I, I remember coming, you know, we'll get that in a minute, but I, 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 I'm sure I saw him, but I definitely with a spoon. And I saw the great sax player, one of my, Eddie Lockjaw Davis. Yeah, Eddie Lockjaw. We got a photograph of him on the wall. You yeah. have James yeah. Moody. Yeah, James Moody. Saw I Daniel. saw him. Yeah. And uh, and uh, oh man, and Big Jay McNeely. Big Jay McNeely. He played here a lot of times. You know, being yeah. me being a sax nut, yeah, I saw a lot of these people. But but basically, just you know, carry on a little bit about what your your dad did. So you know, my dad. We can get to you. you yeah. Know. So my dad really um, is responsible for the club being as eclectic musically as yeah. it is. You've just mentioned all those names. But my dad was also, you know, the guy in charge of the club during the era where we'd end up sort of doing th uh, shows with Radio London. So you'd have like um, uh, the Three Degrees would just come and like mime to records and then the DJs would like play the hits of the day or the, 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 the oncoming, the, the future ones coming yeah. up, all on white labels. And my dad used to bring them home in beer crates and me and my brother and we used to sit there and we had all our, all the mates in the school wanted to come round to our house because we had all these records before they'd been released because the DJ just used to leave me. That's so phenomenal. he was doing stuff like that. And then he would do shows with bands like Roxy Music playing down here. And then you'd, you'd, you'd get a lot of the sort of British blues guys, that movement. And then, of course, the thing that really sort of set him apart, really, was the fact that he started doing the reggae lunchtimes here. And the police hated it. I mean, they just really didn't <laughs> yeah, like yeah. reggae coming into central London. For them, it was the domain of Holloway Road to the north or Brixton to the south. There's no way it's coming here. And my dad got stitched up. So many times the police would come down here and just go, there's a reefer on the floor there. 
you know, uh, wow. if we come back here and this is happening again, we're going to shut you down. And then, of course, the other thing that he did around the same time was the whole punk thing that's started. What, that's down, what yeah. I was going to hit upon because my my first introduction to this club was I was I was underage, so yeah. you can't say, yeah, of course. 15, 14, my, my age my son is now, yeah. and I was a teddy boy, right? But I used to wear the tight winkle picket, the drone pipes. <laughs> I was at school, and someone said to me, they got a, a, a soul boy thing at, at the Andra Club. Yep. Now, I don't know why I, as a teddy boy, ended up, <laughs> so, but I ended up as a, sun, as a Saturday lunchtime soul boy event wow. down here. Yeah. They did have it, didn't they? I? They right did. Yeah, yeah, they now, did. Now, that was the, the era of where the punk was starting out as well. So when we say soul boys, I remember seeing people with a Johnny Rotten, you know, the, yeah, the, yeah. the spiky haircuts. But tell us a little bit more about the punk stuff with your dad. So my dad was a very good mate with a bloke called Ron Watts. And Ron used to be a sort of promoter. And in fact, um, Ron also was in a band called Brewer's Droop. He was the lead singer. <laughs> and it had Mark Knopfler on guitar from Dire Straits. And Ron was in this band and they played there a few times. But then he started dabbing in the sort of blues. And um, my dad said um, that, you know, some of the stuff that he put on down here was absolutely just like that proper R&B, 1950s, 1960s yeah. stuff. Three Tons of Joy and all that kind of thing. And um, he, he didn't see him for a little bit. They sort of, I don't know, Ron sort of disappeared. And then he turned up in around February 76 and went, Roger, I've discovered all these bands. Uh, and my dad said, who are they? He goes, well, there's the Sex Pistols, there's the Clash, there's Susie and the Banshees, there's Stinky Toys. Um, he said, I'd like to give some of my residency down here. My dad wanted, well, if you think, you know, we've got to do okay out of it. And so the Sex Pistols had a residency here from about February, March, 76. They played every third, one month, uh, one Thursday a month. And actually, I've got photographs of them on the wall, and there's like two blokes and a dog in here. There's nobody in here it's watching them. Yeah, no. And Ron also had a place in High Wycombe, a pub. I can't think what it's called now. And he was putting a lot of this punk stuff in, and gradually it was getting bigger and bigger, and then the dam came across. And then eventually, Ron said to my dad, look, I would really, really like to do a punk festival, or punk special, as he called it, over two nights in September, can we use the 100 Club? My dad said, yeah. And basically, the rest is history. The whole thing started down here. I mean, obviously, I think the Sex Pistols' first proper gig in London was at the Screen on the Green in Islington. But the association with punk here was is here with unbelievable. The Sex and, and actually, you speak to any punks now, and this is like a mecca. I mean, I will, I mean, we'll probably get disturbed at some point during this interview where someone will come down and go, is that the same stage John Lydon? In fact... I've met John Lydon a couple of times. I mean, he's my, you know, I, I don't know if you know, but I'm a kind of, I'm punk through and through. I may not look it, yeah. but I'll tell you a little story. My mum and dad moved me from London down to Dorset. And I remember going to this under 18s disco in the Royal British Legion in a village called Ferndown. And the DJ was shit. I mean, he was playing yeah. the theme from Vandervolt, for Christ's sake, to under 18s. <laughs> and like, come on, dance dance with the Saturday night band. And suddenly, he put on Anarchy in the UK. And it was that seminal moment. It was just like three minutes, seriously, that changed my mind, changed my life forever. And a couple of years back, we, uh, last year, sorry, we launched the first ever book about the 100 Club. Um, have you seen it, by the way? I don't think I have. Right, no. I'm going to give you a copy no, at the end of this interview. Love to, yeah, yeah, love and to we got a public image to play, John Lydon. Yeah. And at the end of the show, I went to go in to speak to John, and John's minder is a bloke called Rambo, who's an ex-Arsenal hooligan. 
And I went to walk through the door and he goes, what do you want? I went, I just thought I'd come and say hello to John. He goes, no, 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 no. I went, Rambo, it's Jeff. And he went, oh yeah, I remember you, yeah, you can go. And I said, no, it's fine, we're done. He went, fucking go in, it's fine. <laughs> so I walked in and John was sat down there. And I went, John, and I said, it's Jeff. I've met you a couple of times before, you know, I run the venue. And I just saw this vague look of familiarity come across his face. I went, one thing I've never said to you, John, is you changed my life in three minutes when I was a 15-year-old boy when I heard um, Anarchy in the UK. And he looked at me and he went, oh, you're going to made it all emotional now, haven't you? Did he say that? <laughs> That's what he said to me, yeah. Because I remember when all that stuff came out and because I was sort of like a Ted in a way, you yeah. know, young... We hated the punks, you yeah. know, but we were really old figs when I think, you know, yeah. we were the equivalent almost of the mouldy figs that yeah. they said in the 40s. But when I look back now, the whole thing was completely revolutionary. Oh, it was. And it was a piss take. Lyda was almost taking the piss in a way, you know, out of the establishment. And yeah, it was, well, that was real, real sort of like uh, um, I think subversive. Macla I think McLaren's role in it was what really got... He was a very clever bloke, McLaren. I mean, he ripped them all off and he's done all kinds of things since, but... What he did with punk was extraordinary, and it was completely revolutionary. Ray, I've said, I'm 58 now, and I've said, you know, when people say to me, oh, you know, how do you feel, Jeff? Do you feel, a, you know, would you wish you were a bit younger running the club? I go, no, because I lived through punk. And it was... We saw good things. We, we, we haven't even come close no. ever since then. And also, Ray, people forget the things that it did. So if you remember about punk, uh, it grew up in a backdrop of race riots, the Tottenham was on fire, yeah, I remember. Brixton was on fire, Liverpool, yeah. there was all these issues and it was punk that put a fucking grip on it, not politicians. So you'd have people like Joe Strummer for instance, Joe Strummer, instead of having a support band, he'd have Don Letts, the DJ, um, Paul Weller and the Jam. Instead of having a support band, they get A.D. Crowsdale who does the Northern Soul All Nighters down here playing Northern Soul, so, black so, music. So much came out of it. And the other thing I find hilarious, though, it's funny that you're talking one minute, you have Louis Armstrong years oh, no. before, right? <laughs> right? And Jimmy Witherspoon. And, and then you have bloody punk rock. Oh, no. That is the beauty to me. How can I put it? In a strange way, I look at music as a brotherhood. Yeah. We're all out there doing it. Yeah. We're all suffering the same hardships yeah, with yeah. the travelling. We're all suffering the same amount of successes, rejections. Yeah, yeah, no matter yeah. what style we play. Yeah. And the older I get, the more I realise that we're all connected in a, certain, in a certain way. And we're all doing our bit to, to bring something And you know the other the thing world. as well is that the reason punk is so important for me, Ray, is because punk isn't about, and I've said this a million times, it's not about a free chord guitar if and a haircut. It's about an attitude. You're a punk. You've got it. You've had it for years. You've had it in buckets loads, Ray. I must have seen your band 200 times. Yeah. And every time I see you, you're giving it your best shot and the passion and the care that you You know have. why people like it? Because I play... You know, we're not going to go on, on this show, but you and I, and start talking about swing music. And we can touch upon that because everyone expects me to do mm. that. They don't realise I've got a lot more to of me. And I grew have. up in London. And what you said is right. I grew up on a council estate in Labrick Grove. And when I do the, the jazz or the swing... I always think I put a punk and a rock and roll energy behind you it. You do. You it's do. Still. You see it, especially That's the in way small, I sell it. Especially in small venues like this, it's you see punk in everything. You see it in everything. The reggae artist, yeah. guys like yourself, 
People like Chris Barber's band. I must have seen Chris Barber's band a hundred times here. They had it in bucket loads, that band. You, you know, know? You've, you've, you've got it. And the sad thing is, and again, we don't want to touch upon this too much because we're really talking about the Under Club and, and the, the artists and the, the, the whole movement this place has kind of spawned. But isn't it sad that you got you had the punk and then you had the Blue Beat revival and the, uh, the yeah. Scar and whatever, and then a little bit of the rockabilly. And it's degenerated now to completely anodyne music. And I'm sorry to say that. And you know, I'm not afraid to say it actually, because a lot of my people are, are scared of being perceived as old farts. But if, if, if people think that, so be it. But I listen to the radio, you know, a lot of the stuff on the radio, and I've been to see some of these people like Katy Perry and Ariana Grande, my little girl, she's only 12. And it's manufactured. Yeah. It's what we're talking, we're talking about, we, we were talking about something with heart and humanity to but it and anger. Ray. It's anodyne, it's robotic. What, what I will say, though, is that you won't see anodyne down here, and I'll tell you why. Because I agree completely what you say about mainstream music. It's all, it's fucking wallpaper. It's like musical wallpaper. It's yeah. like, it's like la- uh, lift music, right? But here, you will see some of the best bands you've ever seen. Still, uh, as still, well. I'm telling you now, still. the as far as... Um, rock and roll music, indie music, whatever, and a lot of jazz, Yeah, there are some unbelievable... I would say, seriously, because we just deal... So what, see, without putting too fine a point here, what I try and do, because I'm independent, I try using all independent people, so a lot of my promoters are independents, and these are the guys that pick up on bands before they end up playing at the O2 right. or whatever. Yeah. And these are the guys that know what is happening under the surface so we don't do any mainstream stuff here anymore all the stuff we do is stuff that's quite underground and there's like sort of little communities know about it and i'm telling you right over this last four or five years i have seen some of the best bands that i've seen in a you know time. it delights it's all me out there it. mate it, Deli- is. It, it, it is out there and i completely agree and on any scene whether it's the jazz or blues scene you've got some incredible young people coming yeah, there up are. the only disturbing thing is there isn't enough venues for them to play. No. When I started, and we'll get this, you know, we, I played places like the Bull and, with the Chevalier Club, yeah. you remember? The Bull and Gate, the Dublin Castle, yeah. uh, the George Roby in Frisbee yeah, Park. I anyway, remember. whatever. Was hundreds of venues. Now, you weren't getting paid much, but you, you'd have an audience. Yeah. You'd build an audience. Yeah. And you know what? If you weren't any good or you didn't develop your shit, you wouldn't work. Yeah. There was a lot of also rands that dropped yeah. out, so you had to get good because this. You know what? The, you got to agree. In the early 80s, the standard was very, very high. Yeah, Is that right or wrong? No, I agree. I very agree. high. Yeah. And you'd have to get off the stage if you couldn't yeah. play. No, I learned by to play by sitting in with people like Diz and the Doormen yeah. and Dave Batelli, do you yeah, remember? And yeah, guys yeah. Like that. But and what Ruth Batelli, yeah. Ruth Batelli, yeah. all these people down here. But what I was going to say, say uh, when was the first time you remember us playing here? Because I know your dad booked, he must have booked us in about 1982. Yeah, I wasn't here then. In fact, I'll tell you now, Ray, fun enough, last Saturday was the 35th anniversary of me starting working here. So I've now been here 32, 35 years and two days. I started working here in 1984, and I think I saw you with the Chevalier brothers uh, either the end of that year or beginning of 85 with Morris and, you know, yeah. it was a great and band. And we used there. to pack it. And then we'd also do double headers here with Diz and the Doormen and right. Pete Thomas, Deep Sea Jivers. Deep Sea Jivers. Slim Gaylord. Slim Gaylord, yeah, I remember Where that. can you go now to find two bloody, two or three bands on the bill you yeah, used to yeah, do? Yeah, yeah, You know, it was amazing. But, but what I was going to say, so we did the Chevalier Rubs and we built the thing. Then we did the Rage of Giants thing. And, and uh, I remember you used to book us on a Friday or a Saturday. And we, we, we used to mob the room out. Well, I've I, never I, seen anything like I it. I remember you know? for about... 
it must have been seven years straight we were booking you and you would do four gigs a year maybe every three months yeah and we'd open that door at 7 30 8 o'clock we couldn't get another person in here couldn't get another person I, in here it was a stand and you know what in those days as well what i used to find funny was the smoking oh yeah <laughs> we never knew any different because we grew up in smoke environments and i just remember getting home oh and I, man I think smoke but it was it was it was part of it but all oh, you should have been here which i was when i was a kid when we had the chinese restaurant so you had the smell of beer smoke <laughs> chinese food and toilets the chinese food was on the it was there behind there yeah yeah yeah, well, yeah. So, but I, 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 all i'm saying is and i'm not this isn't about me and my career it's about the club but i consider this one of my one of my musical homes this place i, I consider we developed down here we developed a audience down here that still stay because yeah. we still do this place we do yeah. it maybe twice a year and the last probably the last year or two we started to pack it You've again packed it out again because yeah. we left it for a while you yeah. know we had management and we yeah, had a different yeah, yeah. they had a different but also right you know the thing is right we built we had to build it again uh, i know but you think about it right we're talking about an expanse of time of 35 yeah. years right that's a lot an awful lot has changed in 35 years so my dad he used to cut out all the reviews of all his shows and put them in a scrapbook. And when he got bored of it, he just kept the papers. And I went down to see him a couple of weeks ago, and I started looking through the classified ads of his melody makers and his sounds and his enemies. And I counted up. There were 125 live music venues in Soho and the West End. 125. Now there's three of us. This is that, Jeff. This is what I'm saying. That the sad thing is the training ground for younger musicians like now. And you know what, you've got a lot of guys coming out of college and university, especially on the jazz scene, and they're good players, mm. but there is no substitute whatsoever. So what I always tell no. people, to learning how to play life, you have got to be, you've got to be shit before you can yeah. be good. And I you've remember, got to be told um, off sometimes, you know. I remember Bobby Gillespie saying to me once, he goes, Jeff, I'll tell you something, there are a million good bands in bedrooms, a million, but, this is where you have to come and cut your teeth. Because if you can't perform, yeah. if you can't engage with an audience, especially if you're a front man like you yeah. are and Bobby is, forget it. You're forget never going to get anywhere. You're never going to get anywhere and you've got to do it. But I, 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 you know, the funny thing is, when I've got this gig coming up, we've got one coming on November the 16th. It's a nice plug, isn't it? <laughs> November the 16th, <laughs> Jeff Horton, Ray Gelato, Giants at 100 Club. But I'm only saying it because I get a thrill when I do this place. Yeah, it's great I really get a thrill and, and it's it's... It's part of my heart and soul. Yeah. But but just just while we, we we're talking about it, you know, you're you you seem to be continued and you're 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 growing the place. Um, what do you find of the pitfalls? You know, I know you. I know the club's gone through hard times, and you're you're. I've I've almost lived it with you with it yeah. where you've 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 said it's been such a. I'll tell you what, Ray. Honestly, talk just a little bit about. Yeah, it. I'll tell you what, right. So there's two things. Um, I think you've got to be a certain kind of person to run a venue, any venue, not just this one. If you don't absolutely love what you do, you're never going to last five minutes. And I've lasted 35 years because I'm absolutely passionate about what I do. And what really brought it home was when we nearly went bust in 2010. And there were two things that happened. The first was that people started walking through that door, lads from Oldham and Newcastle and Liverpool and Leeds, and go, are you the bloke that owns this? And I go, yeah, no, mate, mate come and give us a hug I wish you all blokes I'd never seen before and some of them hadn't even been here but they'd heard about it and they'd always wanted to come then I had all these letters that turned up there were envelopes and I'd open up and one in particular was from this lady who said uh, dear sir 
I am now 83 years old and I haven't been to the 100 Club since 1965 because I moved up to Norwich. But I've never forgotten what an amazing place it was. I hope this helps. And there was a cheque in there for 500 quid. Wow. I was getting money orders coming in from America. Hope this helps. Hope this helps. Anyway, I wrote back to all the people that left the forwarding address and I said to them, look, I just want to say this is an amazing gesture. This has made me feel so much better because I didn't realise people like you existed. But... I'm not going to cash your cheque. I just want to keep it with the letter so that if we continue, if we manage to continue somehow operating, whenever I have a bad day, I'm just going to open my file and look at them. And I've got them in my drawer. And every time I'm having a bad time, like I've had aggravation with Westminster Council, the landlords or whatever, I just go to this file with all these cheques and these letters and I just read them through and I go, I feel ten times better now for that. And you know underneath, because when we're... When, when our noses are to the grindstone like they are, and they, they are more increasingly now because yeah. things are not easy, they don't, don't get easy, they get harder. No. We're saying about the live music thing. I'm in yeah. the live music game, you are. We've been here for years. When you just get that little bit of, in, a little yeah. bit of, of, of insight that people love yeah. what you do, it means everything. And the other thing that it happened as well was... You it's know, a beautiful story. But the other thing that happened as well was the godfather of rock and roll, really, Paul McCartney. He came and did a show here to highlight the importance of the club and Barry Marshall his manager rang me and said look he's in South America but he's going to fly over and do this show and he's going to finish his tour in North America and I went geez really he went yep so he turned up and did the gig and and Barry so I've got a couple of stories this Barry says to me they're loading overnight and Barry says right so all the productions will be about 11 o'clock then uh, the sound guy's going to get about 12. Then the barrier's coming. I went, what barrier? What barrier? He went, yeah, yeah, we're going to put a barrier. And I said, no, 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 you can't put a barrier in. He goes, Jeff, it's Paul McCartney. I went, I don't care, it's the 100 Club. Nobody, <laughs> nobody plays it with a barrier. No. And he went, Jeff, listen, he said, uh, I don't know if you realise, but the day that he plays here is within two days of the assassination of John Lennon. And when that anniversary comes round, we get every nutcase in the world emailing us and they're going to do this to Paul, they're going to do that to Paul, da, da, da. So, Paul McCartney playing your club is a really good thing. Paul McCartney dying in your club's a really bad thing. So let's put the fucking barrier in. So I went, all right, Barry, so he's still the only person. And then he gets, and the other thing is, what a story, Barry man. says to me, you know, he's really nervous. I went, what? How can he be nervous? I said, last week he was playing in... Um, uh, Sao Paulo in front of 50,000 people. He goes, yeah, but he can't see anyone. Here, you've got 300 pairs of eyes looking at you. That's the difference in a small club. Yeah. And that's why people of his stature and Van Morris and people like that, they love to see, yeah. to, to perform in a small venue. So he gets up and he goes, right, who wants to save the 100 club? And there's this massive, great big cheer. And then some wag at the back goes, why don't you buy it? <laughs> <laughs> And he went, oh, come on, I'm just trying to help. But what was amazing, there was two other things that happened. The night before, uh, when they were loading his piano tech, American guy comes up to me, he goes, hey, Jeff, um, Paul's going to play your piano tomorrow. And I went, oh, what? That's amazing, really? He goes, well, it might be amazing to you, but I can tell you that's the worst fucking piano he's played in 40 years. You need to get me a Hoover. Because <laughs> <laughs> it had been the domain of people like Tommy Burton with like pints all stacked down sure. it and stuff. But I went to John Lewis and I got there and it took me an hour because it was like the busiest, uh, the busiest shopping day of the year. Went in the electrical department, waited an hour to pick the Hoover up, went downstairs, waited another hour to pick it up from the collection, 
came back and he'd taken this piano into pieces. He changed all the strings that needed changing, put new felts on all the hammers and stuff, put it all back together again. And I tell you, Ray, that that uh, Hoover cost me 50 quid, and it's the best 50 quid I've ever spent because that piano's hardly gone out of tune ever since. You're going to do that rug? He'd put some new felts. <laughs> no, mate, honestly, the, so, so who, it's, it's incredible. You know what? The, the, the McCartney story alone. But the other thing, I'll tell you, there's one other thing I've got to say, one other thing about that show, because it was one of the greatest shows I've ever seen here, you know. You've got to remember, Ray, we're dealing about, so I got Revolver for my sixth birthday for my mum and dad, so this is like a major thing for me. And I remember you saying about getting those little glimpses of light where you think people appreciate what you do. At the very end of that show, he got up and he went, Mr. Hundred you have to keep this place going because it is really, really cool. And I remember listening to that and thinking, do you know what? Just maybe, just maybe I have been doing the right thing all this fucking time. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, 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 it's unbelievable. That story, I, I was just going to say, it's unbelievable. And the ending as well with yeah. that. It's, it's just, just because we, we haven't got a huge amount of time. I know you're busy and, and uh, whatever, but what, what's your, give us some thoughts on the, the future and uh, who have right, you got coming so, up? <coughs> just, just a few In terms of the club, um, we made a decision, or I made a decision a few months ago, that it's now impossible to run any venue as a limited company. So I've become a community interest company, not-for-profit company. Uh, and that was all rubber stamped by a company's house a couple of weeks back. And it means I'm not allowed to make a profit, which I don't mind. I haven't made a profit for 10 years, so it's fine. Yeah. What the, what's the but difference? what it does mean is that I can now apply for funding so I can go to the Arts Council or I can go to any philanthropist or anything like that yes. and I can say to them, I need X amount of money, can I put a, you know, an application in, which you can't do as a limited company. And the other thing is that I can also ask for a discount of up to 100% on my business rates. Now, right now, business rates are killing everything, yes. as you probably know. Yeah. I'm currently paying around... Just under £7,000 a month in business rates here, right? £7,000 yeah. a month is killing us. So I have had a big meeting with all the people at Westminster Council. This time I've not been talking to the suits. I've been talking to the heads of departments, head of finance, head of business, and my local MP. And we have put... We are in the process of putting um, um, an application in for a discount on our business rates. And if I get it, Ray, if, and I'm touching wood every five minutes because this is so important, it will be a massive game, uh, game changer. Like for 10 years, my daughter said to me, who's 24 now, she said, you know, Dad, you've been talking about the same thing and worrying about the same thing since I was at primary school when I was eight or nine. She's 20, 23 now. Puts it in perspective, doesn't it? And so now, Ray, I feel that I've been run the marathon, right, trying to keep this place going. I've spoken about it in Parliament, about how important grassroots music venues are, how important they are to the Treasury. Live music brings in about £7 billion a year, but it all starts down here. If the bands does. like you, who had one of your first breaks down here, or whoever, the Sex Pistols, if there aren't places like this, who's going to headline the major festivals in five years' time? That's, Nobody. That's a perfect point. And therefore, where's that shortfall of money going to come? Uh, why are the tubes running all night long in London if there's nowhere for people to go? Do you know what I mean? So it might seem a very small thing, but I've been arguing this case now for 10 years, saying this is where it all starts. Unless you give us some support, unless you help us, it's not just me and my staff that are going to lose their jobs and a thousand people be 
utterly gutted that the 100 Club's gone. You're talking about everyone being affected. You need to wake up and smell the coffee. And I've spoken in Parliament about this. I've written or co-written reports on grassroots music venues with other venue owners and with Mark David, who runs the Music Venue Trust. And finally, after years of attritional thinking and people with mindsets that are so old, we're finally, finally making some headway. And I feel, Ray, like I say, this will be an absolute game changer for me. I feel like I've run like 23 and a half miles of a marathon and the finishing line is just there and I've just got to get there. And if I do, Ray, and I manage to get all this for the 100 Club, I've already said with Mark from the Music Venue Trust, we are going to roll this out to every single music venue in the country and go, right, this is what we did to save ourselves. Now you do the same. Go and put pressure on your council. If Westminster Council can do something for us, and they haven't yet, we're waiting for that result. I want to just emphasise that. But if we can get them to reduce our business rates by 80% or whatever, that gives every single venue in the country the opportunity to go to their local council and go, this is what they did for the 100 Club, you've got to do the same for me. And they'll be under massive pressure to not to do it. So this basically, if it, if it does well, I really, Jeff, I hope to God it does. I really do. And I know the listeners of this podcast who love the 100 Club will, uh, if it happens, this could be a game changer. For oh, absolute game changer. And Ray will mean, seriously, and I, 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 there's a part of me that's loath to talk about it before it happens because the disappointment's going to be crushing. But if it happens, Ray, it means that I'm going to be able to plan ahead for the first time. Yeah, properly. Properly. I mean, I've not been able to think more than six months ahead because I'm thinking the club might be closed and I can't book anything past that. Yeah. Now, if this happens, it gives me the opportunity to think maybe two, even three years ahead. No, honestly, some final thoughts from me. The world needs this venue. I was going to say London, but you get a worldwide audience. Yeah. When we played here, we've had people here from Canada, yeah. France. Exactly. People come. They come to see. But we really need this venue, and I, and I really hope that it, that it, um, it survives and thrives. Um, do you think the Stones will play here again? That's the final word. Oh, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Oh. Do you know what, though, honestly? It's a possibility, isn't it? It's a po- yeah, who, you never know, mate. I mean, Ronnie Wood, God bless him, you know, he came and did a show here around the time we almost went under, and he just went, Jeff, you know, whatever you want to charge on the door, charge it and keep it. I, I just want to play here and let, let you know that we're supporting you. I mean, and, and the, I've had incredible support from the specials. You know, Terry Hall has been unbelievable. All the guys, all the original guys, Linville, Terry, Horace, they've been incredibly supportive. They've come and done gigs down here and they're doing all kinds of other stuff going on the yeah. background. I think at last, I think what's happened, Ray, actually, is that people always, for years and years, people always took small grassroots music venues for granted. Of they course. just thought they'll always be they'll there. They'll always be there. And yeah. now people are realising you can't guarantee that. And actually, you know, Ray, where would we be as a nation, right? The UK and Ireland, where would we be without music? What are we without music? Look what we've done, the UK, apart from the States, we have been the country to have led the way in live music and innovation and creativity. Do you know right? something in my research? It's a disgrace what you, they've really You done. look at this little tiny group of islands, right? Do you know that we still sell one in every seven downloads or CDs around the world? This little tiny group of islands sells one-seventh of all worldwide sales. That's how fucking good we are at music. It's amazing, Jeff. We're going we're gonna to close off. I've been speaking to um, my, my great friend and the, uh, 
the uh, owner, boss, the uh, the dog of the Hundred Club, <laughs> Jeff Horton. Jeff, it's been such a pleasure, mate, right. and it's been thank you very much to man. hear your insights into this business and the live music venues. It's uh, it's probably been one of the most interesting ones I've done, no, honestly. Thank you. And thank you very much, mate. And God bless you, and I hope everything will work out, and I'm, I'm sure it will. Take Cheers, care. mate. Thank you very much. <laughs>